Hi, this is Dave Garcia, president of Rancho Mesa, and thank you for joining me and listening to my interview with Rob Darby, president of Berkshire Hathaway Home State Companies, brought to you by Studio One, our safety and risk management network. Today, we'll be talking with Rob about the impacts that COVID-19 has had on the California workers' compensation marketplace. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so to begin, Rob, talk to me a little bit about your background and your role within Berkshire Hathaway. Sure. Um, again, first, thanks for having me. I really appreciate, Dave, the opportunity to speak to um, your audience about uh, work comp and, you know, my view of things here in California and um, across the country in terms of COVID and everything else. But <clears throat> in terms of my background, I'm right now, my, my current position is I'm the president and CEO of the work comp division for Berkshire Hathaway Home State Companies, which is a division of Berkshire Hathaway, obviously. Um, you know, we write workers' comp in all 46 non-monopolistic states around the country, with California being our biggest state, about 70% of our total volume. My background is pretty buried. I mean, I started out as an actuary by training at the WCIRB. Um, I tell people I'm in recovery from that career, though. I don't really do <laughs> much actuarial work as I, as I used to in the past. But <clears throat> after leaving the WCIRB, I was, went into consulting for a number of years, um, was in the reinsurance uh, business for a while as an underwriter, moved over into the reinsurance brokerage side, and then I've been at BHHC since 2005, and I've held the current position that I'm in for that last 15 years. So this is the longest place I've stayed, the longest time I've stayed in any one place. Well, with, with that background, I'm sure it's uh, it's brought you a lot of different experiences that probably well prepared you for, you know, your role today. I'd like to say it was all intentional, but the reality is what but I think, you know, I've bounced around to different jobs, it just all kind of like came together. And, you know, I think they, all of the, the past training I had was pretty relevant to, you know, what I needed to be, you know, um, running the work comp group at, at BHHC. So, um, but it, I would like to say it was more intentional than it really was. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure there's still no coincidence to it. Uh, Rob, but let's, before we jump into the COVID-19 situation, where did you see the workers' compensation marketplace prior to COVID-19? becoming a, a topic right <clears throat> well Dave you know as well as I do I mean, now just speaking about we're California in general like I mean we're focused here on California um, I don't need to you know as well as anybody that the market was soft and it was continuing to soften right I mean um, the rates have been going down since <clears throat> effectively 2014 was kind of the high mark for rates in California uh, profitability was you know extremely good at that time but rates have come off now pre-COVID 35 percent from the peak and that's you know pretty big drop <clears throat> the the only advantage and the only reason that that didn't result in sort of you know wild unprofitability is there were very good underlying trends in terms of frequency and severity so even though rates were down 35 <clears> percent <throat> which would normally say we're in a soft very soft market the california profitability was actually okay but it was starting to slip i mean in 20 you know we were already projecting in 2020 that the profitability of the industry was probably going to need or exceed 100% combined ratio, which is when you start, you know, worrying if you're a carrier about, um, you know, whether you're delivering a good result to your shareholders or whoever your constituents are. But it's safe to say that prior to COVID, you know, the, the market was very, very competitive. Yeah. And so as, as you even saw, there was some leakage in terms of uh, flattening of the market, not continuing to decline prior to COVID. What impacts are you seeing already in the short term from COVID that's affecting the uh, work comp marketplace? 
Um, yeah, there have been some impact. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to know how long and how extensive that those impacts are going to be. But I'll just tell you the, you know, the initial trends were not too unexpected. Um, you know, healthcare accounts were obviously the hardest hit right out of the gate, right? Because you had, you know, the headlines coming out of um, Kirkland, Washington was really the first we all kind of, I think, um, sort of recognizing that COVID was going to be a big issue course, even though it had been kind of bubbling under the surface for a while, I don't think anybody had been really paying attention until all those people got sick up in Kirkland. And suddenly we realized that, you know, this is this was no joke and this was going to become a big, you know, potentially a big deal. And it has become a bigger deal. In fact, it continues to become an even bigger deal, it seems like, day by day. Um, but, you know, healthcare accounts are the ones that were, have been the hardest hit for sure. Um, you know, there have been some non-renewal. We've seen a lot of non-renewals in the industry. Um, certainly higher prices for those accounts that are being renewed. Um, new business is pretty tough right now. That if it's a healthcare account that's differentially exposed to COVID, um, you know, it's it's hard to get that place right now. So, um, you know, it's hard to know how that plays in the future. There's really not a lot of visibility into it. I mean, COVID, you know, it's going to be kind of a tie. It's sort of a matter of when you're, you know, pricing the account. If you're looking at a, you know, one one twenty one account, or you know, toward the end of this year or something, COVID may have, you know, we may be on the back end of the curve and you know, COVID will no longer be even a big issue for healthcare. You know, we're lucky and we have a, you know, at least signs of, an, of a vaccine or, you know, some kind of treatment that's very effective. But, you know, right now it's just very difficult if you're trying to write, if you're a healthcare um, entity trying to get coverage is pretty tough in terms of the, the pricing of that. In terms of the rest of the marketplace, it is having an, an impact. I mean, if there is some indication that there's a firming of the rates, I wouldn't say that we're, you know, leaping into a hard market. But if you just look at overall rate levels over the last, you know, month or so, you know, once everybody get kind of got, you know, they started factory in COVID into their um, pricing, you know, we're probably seeing a anywhere from a six to 10 point increase in overall pricing um, relative to where we were, meaning we were down 8% year over year. Now we're more like down two to flat for most of the business. So I don't wouldn't call that a hard market, but it's certainly a firming market. Sure. And are you seeing other effects like we've noticed in, in our with our clients, some existing claims where they're not able to go back in and, and get, you know, the follow up treatments as easily as they were previously, just because of the healthcare concerns of the clinics and doctors offices and things. And is that having any kind of a, a consequence to existing claims for you guys, Rob? For sure. Um you know, there are two aspects to COVID. There's one is the COVID claims themselves, right? And then there the other aspect is the COVID-induced recession or worse, right? That also has an impact on um, how claims that you that are in your existing portfolio are going to play out. Um, but you also bring up a, the point of you know deferral of treatment, which is you know an issue. I mean, there's been some stats out there that have shown that um, elective visits to doctors and you know hospitals and that kind of thing you know, are down like 50% or something, which doesn't make really a lot of sense if you look at the data, like why would heart attacks be down 50% under COVID, right? I mean, it just, you know, there are people that just aren't showing up at the ERs now because they're concerned about getting COVID. So there has been an impact in terms of deferral of um, treatment as well as those those claims that are currently open or were open at the beginning of COVID and then the subsequent layoffs that we've seen, you know, over 30 million people have been laid off um, you know, we probably have an unemployment rate nationwide that's going to, ex- you know, exceed 20%, which is, you know, we haven't seen since the Great Depression. So anybody who was out on work comp, um, that claim is just going to stay open longer. I mean, they don't have a job to go back to. 
So, you know, you're going to you're going to see not only the deferral of treatment, which is now going to get caught up at some point when people feel more comfortable going back to the doctor when they just have to. And, you know, you see more use of telemedicine and that kind of thing, which is which is also I, I think is filling in some of the gap there. But, you know, you are going to see claims that are going to stay open longer in your existing portfolio. And that nobody probably going to be, I think, a drag on the results of many carriers um, that are focused on work comp. Yeah, I know one of the you know attributes of your company's always been to try to handle claims as quickly as possible, get them the treatment you know provided, and get the claim closed as as quickly as possible. And now with the lengthening of those claims, I'm just assuming now that claim costs will rise because of that to some degree. Is is am I correct in that, Rob? You are correct. Um, that's also not particularly unique to this situation. Um, I mean, certainly the pace at which the economy fell off the cliff and the drop in, in the economy is really unprecedented in our lifetimes anyway. Um, you know, we're old, Dave, but we're not that old. We weren't around during the <laughs> Spanish flu of 1918, just barely. Um, but, you know, the, you know, it, this is sort of a normal thing that happens. So, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, you know, I, I do think that there is going to be a drag overall on the cost that, you know, people have, you know, you priced a product last year thinking that you had enough money to cover the claim costs, and you really don't because these claims are going to stay open a lot longer. Um, you know, and you're right. We do try to close claims early. We're not alone in that. I mean, the industry, if you look at industry data in California, the, you know, pace of claim closures have really is accelerated for all, you know, across the industry. <clears throat> so we're not alone. Everybody has realized that, you know, the best way to get, you know, the cost down on a claim, and most employers agree with this, is that you want to settle that claim before it, you know, kind of mushrooms into something much bigger than you anticipated initially. I mean, I, I have my, my favorite horror story in this regard and started to, to kind of go off topic here a little bit, but for a person who had a sprained thumb, and that sprained thumb has now become a million-dollar claim, it's it in California, <clears throat> because all of a sudden that sprained thumb results in a number of other quote-unquote co you know, kind of co-claims that went along with it. So comorbidities and, you know, the, the claim, the, the person that, that had the sprained thumb, there was, you know, she alleged that, you know, she was, um, her kidneys were hurt by the medication she was on and this thing is, you know, mushroomed into <clears throat> something very large. So, you know, that is, you know, something that, that we see quite a bit, um, you know, occur, especially in California. So there will be an impact on, you know, existing claims. And, you know, even though you try to close them early, I think it will be harder to close a claim early right now because there's just a lot of uncertainty. But on the other side of it, you know, there are people that are really hurting for money. And so, you know, the temporary disability rates are not that great. So some people will want to close their claims because they they, they want to have that money to take care of their own care and, and also to be able to take care of their short-term needs for living. Right. So, Rob, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the WCRB presented the Insurance Commissioner's Office with some recommendations. Um, specific to COVID-19, you know, and, and just in case people aren't familiar with those, one was a, you know, no premium collected on employees that are continuing to be paid but not working, the potential for reclassification of those employees who are continuing to work and be paid but are now working from home, and then the potential for the exclusion of COVID-19 claims into the experience rating formula, and there was maybe a few other minor ones. Do you think the insurance commissioner is going to adopt those recommendations? I do. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I would put those into, there are two different categories, I would say, with 
you know, these, um, these ideas, I guess, that have been you know, put out there in terms of how to, the WCRB in terms of how to handle claims. You know, first of all, um, you know, deferring premium payments was kind of the right thing to do, just given where the economy was, right? I mean, we, there, I think this is the <clears throat> industry's, you know, we have to, just like everybody else, <clears throat> deal with the fact that, you know, there are a lot of companies and, you know, we all, we all insure them that aren't able to make their premium payments. So I think deferring that for a couple months, three months or whatever, um, that made sense. I think the issue on that one's going to be that, you know, when, you know, we get back, if, if and when the economy opens up soon, I mean, it will open up at some point, but, you know, if it opens up sooner rather than later or even later, um, you know, what about the money that was now owed? I mean, how is that going to be collected? Is it collectible? Um, I think you're right. going to see a lot more write-offs than you had in the past. I, one of my concerns is that a lot of companies, you know, we've seen this would, you know, have informed us that their payroll is now zero and they want their policy endorsed them down to zero or something very low. <clears throat> but they don't, they also, what, what's going to happen then is that three months from now, they'll be back at, you know, in business and, you know, they won't be paying workers' comp premium, make it deferred to final audit. Um, and, you know, the ability to collect that is really up in the air. I mean, the argument that an insured will make is, well, how, how can you do this to me? How can you expect me to pay this premium back when you know it was COVID related and, you know, we're just trying to keep our, you know, lights on and there are all these, you know, employees that are being, you know, uh, impacted by this. If you make me pay $300,000 for my additional premium, then I'm not going to be able to stay open sort of thing. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the back end and final audit um, to have that. So we're trying to do more along the lines of helping people with, you know, trying to, you know, reflect the fact that their current exposure is less than it was before but also you know how do we get them back into paying work comp premium when they do start having employees come on board so multi-payroll pay go etc i think are becoming you know we're seeing a real shift toward that in our book and i think that's the right thing to do the other part of the the, the question though so there's a, that's kind of the what's right for society which does make sort of sense that you know you would defer premium i don't really have a problem with that the other piece of it that makes this more kind of a philosophical but argument, which I also think more or less makes sense, which is that, you know, when you have an employee that used to be, I'm going to make up a real wild situation, which doesn't happen that often, but let's say you had a roofer and they were a 25 or $30 rate, rate, you know, roofer that's now at home doing some kind of, you know, clerical work that they've been, that's been identified by their employer or something they can do, right? So they're sitting at home doing work. They're no longer getting on a roof, right? So they're, they're, exposure is very different than it was when they were working in the construction on their construction job. Um, it makes sense that that would be reclassified into a lower rated class, be it ADA 10 or, you know, whatever the, you know, the right classification would be. So I actually don't have a problem with that. I think that makes sense. Um, so I think that part of it also makes sense. The issue about the X mods is kind of interesting because I've <clears throat> done some thinking about that and there are kind of two schools of thought. One is that, you know, well, COVID claims are kind of a once in a lifetime sort of thing, let's hope. Um, and should they be included in the XMOD calculation? The answer is, sure, certainly that's an argument. They're once in a lifetime, they're not in the pure premium, why would we include them, et cetera? But there's also another argument of like, well, shouldn't we be rewarding a company that managed to avoid COVID claims by giving their employees the right per, you know, PPE and you know, took precautions that maybe another employer in the same industry didn't take? Shouldn't there be some mm. re recognition of that um, in the XMOD? So I think there are two schools of thought. I'm kind of like, you know, I would say I'm agnostic on this one right now um, in terms of where it goes. I mean, I can, I think it'll probably end up the day COVID claims will be excluded though from the XMOD calculation. Yeah. 
That's why I always like talking to you, Rob. It's uh, like I, I never leave the conversation without learning, you know, a ton of information. And whether you uh, want to admit it or not, your actuarial background um, pops through every once in a while when you're assessing these situations. <laughs> Dude, normally you, you tell me you tell me that because my personality is so flat that that's when you know that I was really an actuary by training. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's, there's also some rumors out there, Rob, I tried to stay as much informed as I can, but, uh, since I've got you on the phone, you know, I've heard these rumors of the potential of an executive order coming out by Governor Newsom. Uh, he's kind of held it at bay for a few weeks now with, you know, the sessions about to start back up. I'm wondering, do you think he's going to have that executive order? It had to do with the presumption for COVID-19 claims. You think it's going to happen? Yeah, I do. Um, actually, you better post this podcast like after, right after we're done with it, because whatever I say here is going to change because the landscape for presumption and you know what the governor is going to do changes hourly. So you know, just be aware okay. that everything I say now is going to be stale by the by the time that you probably post this. <laughs> but in the last twenty four hours, there's been a new iteration of the executive order. It's actually a well. Is a better version. Um, it's still not great, if you will, but it is a better version in that it does allow for a rebuttable presumption for uh, the claim, whereas before he was trying to essentially say that any worker that contracted COVID and they were working outside the home would be automatically assumed to be covered. Then it got moved to only essential workers. The problem with this defining essential workers is that you know, frankly, Dave, you know, believe it or not, you and I are considered essential workers because we work in the financial services industry. So right. what was unclear to me is whether which was worse, essential workers or people that worked outside the home, you know, for, you know, within the last 14 days, because frankly, most <clears throat> financial services companies, unless you happen to be a frontline bank teller or something like that, um, most people are working from home, right? So those people aren't going to be covered yeah. in that situation. But if they move it to essential workers, which, you know, still up in the air in terms of where they're going to go with that. Um, I'm not sure which is worse, but <clears throat> the good news is the latest order um, does allow for rebuttable presumption, meaning that even if they decide that a certain, if he decides he wants a certain class of workers, you know, presumed to have their COVID is presumed to be work-related, you will have the ability as a carrier to rebut that, meaning that the best example would be somebody who, you know, has been working from home for the last month, but somehow gets COVID now, right? But they haven't right. been working outside the home for the last month. So, you know, given the incubation period is, you know, purported to be two days to two weeks, maybe it extends to 17 days, something like that. But it's in the, you know, one to two week range is kind of normal. So if someone's not been working as I don't for the last two weeks, two months, sorry, last month, it's awfully hard for them to prove that they got COVID as a result of their work. So there will right. be, the fact that it's rebuttable as a carrier is better but, you know, let's be, let's be clear here. What was really going on and what's going on, it's just California, it's all over the country, is there is an attempt to cost shift between state governments onto the private industry as much as possible. And the reason for that is, you know, pretty clear. If you've got a downturn in the economy, which looks as grave as it, you know, it, it is, I guess, um, you know, the receipts, the, you know, revenue that's going to be received by the various um, public entities around the, the, the country, California included, even though we started with a large surplus, you know, it, it that surplus got eaten up pretty quickly. You know, my understanding is that uh, revenue is down 20 to 25 percent in most states. Um, they're looking for ways for other people to pick up the cost. So, you know, this is one way to do that. They would rather have the work comp carriers pay work comp 
benefits to a, a worker as opposed to having that worker file for SDI, um, you know, that the state would end up having to pay for. So, you know, part of this is cost shifting. I do think he's going to, he's going to sign it. I mean, he's, he seems very, the latest from this morning is, you know, he's determined to sign this, even though the legislature is going to be back, is back in session, I think, or they're going to be back in session this week, maybe, you know, virtually. And there are a couple of law bills that are, have been presented that would, you know, roughly do what he's, his executive order would do. Maybe there are little nuances to them, but, you know, it's unclear to me what happens if there is legislation that, you know, has passed that, you know, might contradict his executive order. There's also a question of whether the executive order is even, you know, constitutional. So there'll be all sorts of issues around that. But, you know, for the most part, it's not, a, you know, what he's now proposing is not as nearly as draconian as it was initially, which would essentially made everybody, you know, that gets COVID able to file a work on a job. Well, Robert, we're kind of winding down here towards the end, but what, what, uh, if any, long-term impacts do you think are going to come from the COVID-19 situation on, on the marketplace? Yeah, if I knew that, I'd probably, you know, go consulting and sell that information for a lot of money. I, I don't, I don't really, I don't think there, <clears throat> there's a lot of visibility, I and mean, I think that's probably safe to say, which is not really is a non-answer. I will try to answer it. Um, I do think work on pricing is going to firm up, you know. At least in the short to medium short to medium term, depending on how bad COVID hits the results of the insurance carriers will determine whether that firming stays in place, right? So um, you know, the market was very competitive going into this. It's just now it just literally we hit a wall. It was like about getting windshield on your car, right? And it was like whack, we just suddenly, you know, we're faced with COVID, we're faced with a <clears throat> economic downturn of likes we've never seen before. And that is having an impact on rates for sure. Um, it's just a matter of how bad that is. I mean, you know, now they're talking, <clears throat> the uh, University of Washington model that everyone kind of has been looking at doubled their estimate of number of people that will pass away from this, um, from this virus from 70,000 to about 135,000. And that happened literally overnight. Um, and that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that's a lot more people. I think it's going to have a big impact on if that really were to come to fruition, if, if the government's projection of 3,000 people dying per day in June actually comes to, to pass. I mean, there's just a lot more fear, I think, in people, and that could really reduce our recovery. I mean, the irony of this is, and I mean, not to be, I'm not trying to be political with this comment, but the irony of opening up too soon is that if you open up too soon and people, you know, a lot of people start getting sick and dying and it becomes more of a real issue for people in terms of, you know, they lost a friend or they lost a mother or they lost a a grandmother, you know, people that are close to them, you know, when it starts being more of an issue, people are going to, you know, they're, they're, they're going to wish they hadn't opened up. Right. Crawl back into their shells. Well, and it may be harder to kind of get the, the economy back at that point. Yeah. So it looks like it, this situation, I mean, it, the news changes daily, nationally. Locally, it changes every day. Um, the workers' compensation marketplace is just, you know, a ship, you know, in the ocean of that storm that you know gets buffeted with different things every day whether it's the executive orders or changes in the marketplace and things like that so i guess for those business owners that are out there that are able to listen to us today rob if if moving forward if you're a business owner in california from a work comp perspective aside from making sure you know your safety program is up to you know standards is there anything else you would suggest to those owners out there that they should be paying attention to or doing to help try to minimize um, any increases yeah. or effects? Yeah, you know, I think this is a really 
good question. It's a hard one to answer because you already answered probably the the core of it, which is, you know, first of all, I guess I would just say you just want to make sure you're doing the right thing by your employees. And that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, right? But when I when I'm the way I'm thinking about it is if you have you know employees that are working for you and you know that they're going to be exposed to COVID either because they're a grocery worker or because they're you know they've got some kind of you know they're differentially exposed to public you know they can't socially distance the way that the rest of us can that work from home sort of thing you know you just want to make sure you have the you know you you need to invest in the safety gear for them for those people to the extent you can because it will matter I mean you will if you have a lot of losses that's going to impact your ability to get you know coverage um, elsewhere potentially because your losses could be could be poor but also utilize the, the loss control services that your carriers provide I mean for example we're excuse me, doing a lot of work with companies, you know, our loss control people are very well versed in this kind of thing, right? I mean, how do you protect your, how do they protect themselves and how to protect workers against exposure? <clears throat> Utilize those services. I mean, you're paying for them as a, as a company. When you, right. <clears throat> most carriers provide them. I mean, if you're with a carrier that, you know, is a service provider, they have loss control services. You, I would, I would take it, take advantage of those. It doesn't mean that you necessarily need to have them come out on site. We're doing a lot of virtual, you know, meetings right now with loss control. Where you know we're meeting with the risk manager of the company, you know it's a pretty kind of like you know meeting day board, you know, like kind of we're having here, maybe with a video conference aspect to it, you know where you can kind of talk to somebody and tell them, you know they may say, hey, how do I protect my workers? And the our people can tell, and other loss control professionals around the industry can help you, um, help them determine how to best protect their employees. And part of the reason for this is not just that it protects the employees, which it will, <clears throat> but you want your employees to feel like you care about them because let's face it, the most you know, biggest reason why companies have bad loss experiences is there's a poor relationship between management and employees. So mm-hmm. to the extent that you can keep that, if, if, to the extent that you can keep trust up between the employee and the employer by the employer saying, hey, we're doing the right thing. We're trying to protect you guys. We know you got to be up there on the front lines, but we're doing our best to protect you. That just goes a long way. I mean, that goodwill is going to be something that will be reflected in the loss experience and ultimately in your, you know, potentially in your ex-mod or you know, and the, your ability to secure coverage somewhere else. So um, that really would be the, the thing I would think of. I think that's really, you know, good advice. I think we never want to lose sight of uh, safety for certain, um, but what that means to each company is a little bit different. And I think you put that in in great terms of just saying, making sure that your employees know how much you care about them, trying to keep them safe. A lot of that is subjective. You know, it's not objective. Um, but the efforts that go into that are safety training, providing the proper gear, doing workshops, certifications, things like that. So I think that's good advice for everybody in any marketplace. But in this crazy time that we're in, that's probably just a really good reminder. Yeah, there's just I want to just add pin one thing to what you just said, which is that this is, you know, not to overstate this, but I think it's true that you know, this is a time when a broker can show its value to their customer as well. Because you know, to the extent that you provide services that would help your customers minimize COVID exposure or just losses in general, right? I mean, the other thing that could happen is like, you know, people are so worried about COVID, but, you know, you're still exposed to all the other risks that a company would have, right? I mean, if you're a landscaper or you're a grocery worker or whatever, there's sort of a baseline level of exposure that you have just to risk, right? And so to the extent that you can, you know, work, I think this is where brokers that provide those kind of services and actually, you know, go kind of above and beyond and aren't just sort of a, you know, placement vehicle for insurance, but actually provide value add. I think they're going to, they're going to be, 
you know, viewed differently in the marketplace in a positive way. And I think it's a, you know, brokers are always looking for ways to improve their, you know, increase their value to their customers. It's a good opportunity. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Rob. Th- thanks for sharing that. Okay, well, Rob, hey, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I, I can tell you from my perspective, what you shared today about the impacts of COVID-19, just kind of where the workers' compensation marketplace is and just your other insights to California and its business situations um, have and, and will have uh, help us all to better navigate the future. So that'll do it for today. Uh, thank you for listening uh, to Studio One, our safety and risk management network. And remember to subscribe to our podcast to ensure that you hear the latest episodes. Hi, this is Dave Garcia, president of Ransom Mesa. And just a few hours ago, after we taped our interview with Rob Darby, president of Berkshire Hathaway Homestead Companies, Governor Newsom did in fact issue his executive order concerning COVID-19. This order will create a rebuttable presumption that a worker who is working outside the home at the direction of his employer and who contracts a COVID-19 illness does incur a work-related injury for the purposes of workers' compensation. There are many more details to the order, and as such, many questions will arise. So I've asked Rob to rejoin us and get some of those questions answered. Rob, thanks for rejoining us here on Studio One and offering your insights on this now-issued executive order. No worries, Dave. Long time to talk to him. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, to, so to begin with, let's go through some of the details. So it looks like from the order that the period in question will be from March the 19th, which was when the initial shelter-in-place order was given, until 60 days after this order was issued, which would make that around July the 6th. How do you see that then? Is that for people with injuries or COVID illnesses only within that time period, or how are your? I know. Uh, all of this is brand new and fluid, so there's not any real concrete uh, specifics. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, in fact, the wording of the order says that the presumption would would apply from the dates you mentioned. But if you had a COVID-19 diagnosis prior to March 19th, you would not receive the benefit of the presumption, meaning that the the burden of proof would go back onto the employee to prove that they actually caught COVID as a result of their workplace. So, you know, the presumption, you know, is a, is a big deal in that it shifts the burden of proof from the employee to the employer, which is harder to rebut, obviously, especially if you have a positive COVID-19 diagnosis. But that date seems to be March 19th. Using the same logic, I would assume that unless this order is extended or something beyond July 6th, you know, any positive COVID di- diagnosis after July 6th would be under the same guidelines in terms of the presumption and the you know, who's going to be responsible for or who's got their burden approved to establish that the COVID was work-related. Okay. So I think you made a really good point there. The burden of proof for this order shifts from the employee proving it to now the carrier in behalf of the employer has to prove that the COVID-19 did not come from his work employment. Is that, am I reading that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So it looks like as we continue through the order that the eligibility threshold is either a positive test, which, and we know testing has been pretty limited, or a physician or surgeon licensed by the California Medical Board providing that diagnosis. Now, the only caveat to that is that diagnosis, if it's done that way, needs to be followed with a positive COVID test within 30 days. What's your thoughts on that, Rob? I don't know. I thought that was an odd part of the order, to be honest with you, right? Because if a worker receives a COVID-19 
test, they don't need to have a physician acknowledge that they also probably had COVID-19 because they have a positive 19 test. The positive COVID-19 test triggers this presumption, if you will, that they had COVID-19 and it was work-related. I don't, what I don't mm-hmm. understand is that, you know, they're saying, but if you have a diagnosis of COVID-19 by someone who's a licensed medical board, they don't have to be part of the NPN, by the way, which is a little bit troubling, but there's also this additional requirement for a subsequent positive test within 30 days in order for the benefits to continue. So it sounds like what happens there is you may be at some initial benefits if your physician said you had COVID-19, but unless it can be shown that you had COVID-19 through a test, those benefits would only last a certain period of time is what it it reads like here, because otherwise it doesn't make a lot of sense, particular wording um, in that, you know, if you will, Getting a diagnosis and a positive test is obviously a stricter requirement than just having a positive COVID-19 test. So I'm a little bit of an odd point, unless what they're really trying to say is we're going to let you, you know, we'll give the injured worker the benefit of the doubt, and but they need to have a positive test in order to continue to receive benefits um, after 30 days is what it sounds like they're trying to do here. Okay. And then, Rob, speak a little bit to the 14-day outside the office, that part of the executive order that you... Yeah, so this has been, and this is what Newsom has been talking about for a while. And I guess the idea would be that given that the average incubation period for COVID-19 is, you know, anywhere from two to 14 days, 14 days being kind of on the the outside, I think there are a few, you know, outlier situations where they think the incubation period may have been longer than 14 days, but 40 days is kind of generally considered to be the maximum incubation period for COVID-19. So the 14-day period is meant to say, okay, well, if the worker has been out, has been working in the home for the last for 14 days or more, then their COVID is quite likely not the result of something that they were exposed to in the work environment, right? So they would have caught it either through a lack of social distancing or someone in their home got COVID, something along those lines that would cause them to be to, to catch the, the disease if it occurs 14 days or longer after their last day of, date of employment outside the office. So the idea, and it's not, you know, it's not a bad way to look at it, I suppose, that if you're, you know, if you've got someone who's been working in the home for a long period of time, then you would expect their COVID, if they did get it, to be, you know, the trans, you know, it's coming from somewhere else, basically, right? It's not coming from the, the, right. the employee, the employment per se. So, you know, and it, so that part of it isn't, doesn't really offend me personally. What's interesting is if you, you know, receive, if you get COVID 20 days, let's say, you know, after your last day of working outside the office, that would not be covered under this this order. You'd have to, you know, again, it would be fall back into the the other category. You'd have to prove it. As a okay. worker, you'd have to prove that it was outside the home. And one thing in other states have, have had different, you know, their governors have had different executive orders relative to COVID-19 pertaining to work comp that have mixed and matched some of what we see here. One of the things that I see, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it, is this isn't limited just to essential workers and those businesses that have been deemed essential workers. This looks like it would cover any business that would have this situation. Is that how you interpret it? Yeah, yeah, that's how I read it as well. And I think that's always been Newsom's direction that he was planning to go anyways. He wanted everyone covered. And I think the logic there from his perspective or from, you know, you know, maybe the employee advocate perspective would be, you know, if someone has been coming into the office, let's just say, and they have to ride public transportation into the office, then, you know, the 
the question is, is that, should that be compensable? I mean, if they caught COVID on BART or something in the Bay Area, you know, should that be a compensable claim? And I think he always felt that it should be. Um, and that's kind of the, the rationale, I think, there. Okay. And then one of the other significant changes I see in this is that typically the employer and the carrier have up to 90 days to deny a claim. This order shortens right. that period to 30 days. Do you see that as right. being a, a bigger burden now for the employer and the carrier? Sure, because like yeah, absolutely. Because you know, if it's a rebuttable presumption, then you know, you you the burden of proof is now on the employer, meaning the insurance company, to prove that the you know that this worker did not catch it, even though they were working outside the home uh, for that period and they did receive a positive diagnosis. That we have to prove that they did not catch it from a work-related activity. Um, that can be, I, I don't, you know, in all, in all candor, I think presumptions, you know, or rebuttable presumptions are only somewhat effective for the insurance companies or for the employer to push back on, um, just because it's awfully hard to prove it. And to your point about the time period, I mean, you're only now given 30 days. So, so you know, you, you really have to move quickly. Now, there is the, the one thing I think that they do mention, I think that you can still decline a claim after, you can deny a claim after 30 days if you receive additional information after that time. But the first, okay. at least the first, you know, if you will, um, I don't know if you want to, what the right term would be, order or, you know, the, if the, the first is going to be that they're assumed to have caught COVID at the workplace. If that's not determined within 30 days, you can still investigate it. If you find out that there's some reason that they, you know, you really, you know, like, for example, let's say three people in their household, you know, ended up having COVID and they had it before this individual, let's say they had it three weeks before this individual caught it or two weeks even, you know, you could make, there might be a nexus between the people that are living in the home and that employee that has nothing to do with the work environment, right? So there, you know, right. that would be one way you might be able to rebut the, rebut it. But it, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, going to be a hard thing to prove. And it's also going to be very hard for, I, I think, if you're being realistic, you know, most judges are not, not going to find in favor of an insurance company if it's a jump ball. Um, right. And so I think you're going to, you know, most of them are going to have to look, think really long and hard about whether you want to fight, you know, a particular claim in terms of, um, you know, it's, it's, whether it's, if it's rebuttable or not, because it's going to cost you a lot of money, but you may lose, you're more likely to lose. So you, know, you have to, you're going to have to make some, you do some your own calculus on whether it makes sense to, you know, push back on a particular claim. And there's just a lot of societal pressure to, you know, you know, do, you know, to essentially do the right thing, quote unquote, you know, for the worker. Um, right. And that's, I think a lot of people would, would look at this and say, you know, how, how could this big bad insurance company, you know, deny this guy benefits when, or this woman benefits, you know, they obviously fall within the presumption order. And, you know, just because the, you know, that, that particular employee had three family members who had COVID before, you know, he or she got it, you know, do, you know, that, are you really going to deny this person benefits, right? Because they don't have group health or something. I mean, that, sure. that's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, it's obviously what a lot of, you know, these presumptions are meant to do is cost shift between the state and back onto the private industry. And, you know, this one's no different. I mean, this is an attempt to, you know, get benefits in, you know, get benefits in the hands of injured workers quickly and through, you know, another mechanism other than the government. Um, because they're, you know, obviously our state governments are going to be and local governments are going to be very stressed by, by what's happening in the economy and, and the like. Yeah. Well, like I, I think I said to, to begin this segment, Rob, there's certainly going to be more questions unanswered than answered, you know, 12, three hours after right. this order has been released. And 
I'm sure when you start work tomorrow, your your phones will be ringing, claims department phones will be ringing with various scenarios and questions, and it's hard to predict all of those outcomes. One other area that maybe we can just spend a few minutes on is there, there's currently a couple Senate bills and an assembly bill um, with uh, government reopening next week in Sacramento, and then the potential for this constitutionality of this executive order. What what are your yeah. thoughts on the Senate bills and assembly bills that all kind of have been rumored to be dealing with certain aspects of the COVID-19 uh, situation? Yeah, I mean, uh, the answer is I don't know because there, you know, my guess is there are quite likely going to be, con you know, contradictions between this executive order and, um, you know, what the bills made actually do as well so they'll, they'll that'll have to be reconciled um there is this issue of whether the governor has the ability to you know put out an executive order like this and basically you know define you know work comp law and that sort of thing you know through executive order which will be challenged i'm sure but this is all over the country this is happening all over the country so this is a kind of a, a common issue that a lot of um people are dealing with about whether you know governors and dois can actually do this sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I don't really have an, I'm not going to weigh in on the point of view. I'm not a constant, you know, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. So I don't have right. a point of view on that other than to know that there's, you know, going to be pushback on that. And also I think there are going to be bills, like you said, that are going to, you know, one of these three bills, there will maybe be others that will either complement or contradict um, this order. And it's going to be a matter of, you know, how does that get resolved? Um, right. So we'll have to see. I mean, it's just, it's hard to know right now how that's all going to fit together. My guess is there'll be a lot of behind the scenes, you know, discussions ar around how the bills fit into um, the executive order. There'll be probably a lot of discussion around what the executive order may miss or what they may, you know, what maybe the limitations are um, in the executive order that labor wants to see, you know, made, made more strong. Um, that's a possibility, but there's probably a lot going on behind the scenes, even, you know, you know, when this was done and also, you know, in, in the subsequent days this week, you know, they'll be talking, I think, about how to reconcile some of those issues. Yeah. Well, Rob, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add or have you feel like you've covered? Well, yeah, I've really been a big help, right? It's like more, I think I said, I don't know more than anything that I, anything here. But I, I guess the one thing I would say is this could have been worse in some ways. I mean, it does create a rebuttable presumption as opposed to a non-rebuttable one. So there is the opportunity to push back there. It is time boxed in, in a, you know, in the, it had to occur during the, you know, um, emergency order that went out on, I guess, the state of emergency that was put out on March 19th. And then, you know, it does end at a certain point in July. So, I mean, I think that there are some, you know, it has been time boxed in some degree. So that's, that's actually a positive. But, you know, and the other positive, I guess, if you want to call it that, is there, you know, in California, when we have a fatality and there's no, uh, there are no dependents remaining for that individual. There are any dependents for that individual. We had to pay the death benefit to the state, and that's been removed from this. So, you know, death benefits would not be paid to the state um, in the event of a fatality for someone who had no dependents. So I suppose that's a, a positive for the industry as well. Um, okay. But, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see whether this gets extended. I mean, it's, you know, this is through July 6th, and, you know, it just depends on who you talk to about what the curve is going to do and, you know, the rate of infections are, are going to do with people you know, itching to open up. And I think the opening up is happening even here in California. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're all kind of holding our breath on that, I think, a little bit. 
Well, listen, Rob, thanks thanks for being available on such short notice. You know, I really appreciate you taking my call back. And, um, you know, this is literally hot off the press. So we really appreciate your time and your insights this morning. Um, uh, just want to thank you again. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me. And, you know, one thing I would just recommend that everybody do, it's kind of obvious, but, you know, there are going to be a lot of, you know, webinars and, you know, legal opinions that people are going to be, you know, uh, putting out there in the next few days. I just recommend to do, I'm going to be listening to a lot of them. Let's just put it that way. Um, just because, you know, everyone's going to have an opinion and they're going to be differing opinions. And, you know, it's good to get kind of that diversity to think about, you know, what the, you know, what really is going to happen here. And they'll be so, so I, over the next few days, it'll become a little bit clearer about how this would actually apply. And I just, rec I just would recommend that everybody listen to as many of those things as they can or read as much as they can about it. Yeah, that's a great tip, Rob. Th thanks again. Well, that'll do it for this update. Uh, thank you all for your time and listening to Studio One, our safety and risk management network. And just remember to subscribe to all of our podcasts to get safety and risk management news. Bye, all. This is Alyssa Burley with Rancho Mesa. Thanks for tuning in to our latest episode produced by Studio One. For more information, visit us at RanchoMesa.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter.